Laura. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today, we are continuing our mini-series on the live-action films of Wes Anderson, with his third film released in 2001, The Royal Tenenbaums. And we have a guest joining us to talk about faked illnesses, elaborate art direction, and arrested development, is screenwriter and podcaster John Engel. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, um, John, we like to start the, the, the show to sort of just talk about your background with Wes Anderson, which was the what was the first film of his that you saw and uh, which one's your favorite? Uh, the first one I saw was Rushmore. Uh, I, I'd seen a VHS box for Bottle Rocket in the, in the bin, like the bargain bin at my grocery store for months. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what it was. Uh, I kept saying, oh, this guy's pointing guns. Okay, that catches my attention. And then when the Rushmore trailer came out, my girlfriend at the time and I were just like, got to see this immediately. And we we actually made a point to see it like opening weekend as if it were, a, like you said, like you're doing a franchise film. It's been my favorite for a long time. And there's always, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this. There's that running theory that your first Wes Anderson's always going to be your favorite Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. But I really think the one we're talking about today has become my favorite. Mm-hmm of his over the years and we can get into why that might be there'll be multiple topics that probably touch on why that is as we're yeah. as we're discussing it but still love rushmore though i do have a soft spot for it as that first mind blower you know when i yeah. went to the theater and said i didn't know i had no idea what i was gonna see it it, it topped my expectations from the trailer and um well that was my first experience with it yeah it does really feel like there is a slight Wes Anderson is one of those filmmakers, a lot like Quentin Tarantino, as as we've talked about um, a few times, where there's a generational divide in terms of mm-hmm. like <clears throat> you have a certain generation, like like the the little bit of an older crowd, like like you and I, John, where Rushmore tends to be the gateway drug into Wes Anderson, and then there's younger people where the 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 gateway drug tends to be like Moonrise Kingdom for some reason, but or it, fantastic it tends- Mr. Fox. Or Fantastic Mr. Or Fox fantastic. for the very yeah. younger crowd. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. as John was uh, alluding to at the beginning, but prior to hitting record, um, his son recognized this, like this, this, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums look and being like, let's watch Fantastic Mr. Fox without knowing, right, that this is the same director? Nope. Not, he did, I mean, <laughs> not really. I, if he had that understanding, he, he understands things that I didn't don't realize a lot of times, though, too. And, it, and I was like, oh, okay, uh, that makes sense. He goes, yeah. Yeah, I know it makes sense. You know, I didn't go into it any further, but I think it's probably he just elements of style, you know, they're apparent. Uh, yeah. And with him in yeah. particular, with Wes Anderson in particular, he's very specific. He's so specific style wise that even a kid catches on, you know, to, to that. Yeah. It's that Futura font, I think. That's the dead mm-hmm. giveaway. <laughs> oh, that's got to be a bit. Because, yeah, it was. I think, yeah, we were watching. I was watching the very opening with the uh, character intros. And he was like, 
can we, after you watch this, can we watch? And I was like, yep, a lot of the same font. And I think yeah. he's still get Fury. He's kind of moved on to Archer, Archer font, which is my kid's name, actually. But hasn't he kind of moved on to Archer font in the recent years? Have you guys gotten into the font changes? Because he's definitely uh, no, no, not as rich as he used to be. Stuff yet, so. Right. Well, yeah, I look forward yeah. to hearing what you have to say when you get there. But um, anyway. Nick, what what did you uh, – I, I assume much like the other films that we've covered so far, this is the first time you're revisiting this in like 10 or 15 years. So like – what what are your what were your thoughts going into this? Because I know that like for both of us, you know, we watched the Umbrella Academy, and like that has a lot of like meaning for us, and obviously that is heavily influenced by this movie in particular. So I, I feel like there's like a lot of like weird connections that we have with this movie, just in uh, uh, culture, our 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 culture. Yeah, th- th- I have an interesting relationship with this movie. It may be the first Wes Anderson movie I saw. I'm not I'm not sure. The timeline is fuzzy. I either saw Life Aquatic in the theater first or this on DVD first. But mm-hmm. I definitely remember the circumstances. My brother and my sister-in-law, they had this on DVD, the Criterion Collection DVD. It's the first Criterion thing I ever like held. And um my br- my relationship with my brother and his wife are like, you know, I'm really close with them and they're responsible for a lot of my pop culture knowledge they Mm. got me into uh, they had all the adam sandler cds from from college uh clerks that's the reason i got into clerks ben folds uh Mm. dookie they they he gave me his cd of dookie to listen to you know and this was another cultural artifact that they let me borrow like oh this is one of our favorite movies take this home and so my brother and i say this with like so much love is like one of the most unpretentious people i've ever met uh-huh. Uh, his favorite restaurant is Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, he got me into Adam Sandler and Chris Farley. So that's kind of where my head was at with this movie. I was like, oh, this is a really funny comedy. And like Ben Stiller's in it. Owen Wilson's in it. So that was my mindset. And I still think that affected my perspective of Wes Anderson, mm. where my first inkling is that he's a these are comedies. He's a comedic filmmaker. And. I remember just like looking through the Criterion DVD because it's full of these like it's fully illustrated and there there's right. like a little booklet and even the case, the plastic casing it looks like a little Wes Anderson diagram. So I remember like watching the movie while holding, you know, almost like the way you used to listen to an album or a CD. And like Scott said it's like a theme every week going forward where I revisited it for the first time in maybe a decade and it's it hit me tremendously emotionally and like mm-hmm. I don't, I never say Wes Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers. Like when you ask me to make a list, mm-hmm. like I'm never like, oh, Wes Anderson. But like week by week, I'm like, holy shit, I also love this movie. And <laughs> I'm also obsessed with the way he does this and all. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I, I really got a lot out of re- revisiting Real Tenenbaums this time. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. I, um, you know, Wes Anderson has definitely been one of my favorites for a long time, but I remember, you know, I, we talked about this last week with Rushmore and the first time that I saw Rushmore and much like John seeing the trailer and just being like, well, I obviously need to see this immediately. Um, I don't know what it is about this that is, you know, um, uh, affecting me so much. But like I, th- this feels personal to me. Um, and then seeing it, you know, blew me away. But this movie, um, I don't think I got to see this one in theaters because um I don't know. I, I, I think it was there was something about the poster that didn't they didn't heavily I don't remember them heavily marketing that this was from the director of Rushmore. So I don't think I knew that. And 
there was something this got like tied so heavily into the sort of like Oscar buzz and all of that. And I was 16 when this came out and was just like, oh, like snooty art films, like ugh, whatever. Like I like Spider-Man, <laughs> you know, or like <laughs> whatever. Um, and so this was not uh, on my radar really at all. Like I, I knew the, the poster and I saw the poster all the time and I remember people talking about it, but it didn't really do anything for me. And then I rented it and I was completely bowled over by it because I, I was like, I realized that it was the same director as Rushmore. And then I was like, what is, what, what happened? Like what happened between Rushmore and this? Because this is so specific. This is like Max's plays, but a whole movie. Like what is going on here? And, and it was, you know, this is the first film I think where Wes Anderson is like fully Wes Anderson. And it's like everything after this is, you know, different aspects of, of his sort of like, you know, quote unquote, auteurism. I don't love that term because thousands of people make the movie, not just one person, but, um, you know, it, it is like, he does seem to have his hand in every single department and like his th thumbprint is on everything. Right. And this was the first film where he sort of came into his own. It's his biggest hit up to this point. And I think that this is where he solidified like his confidence as a filmmaker of like, oh, okay, I can be 100% myself and people like that more than when I'm hiding that or obscuring that. I, there was just something like so open and, and um, like open hearted about this movie that really attracted me. Um, as a, a screenwriter, as a, you know, somebody who wanted to be a director, this just like blew me away, this movie. And, you know, it's, it's also like when you're learning about filmmaking and you see a movie like this and it's so immediately apparent, like that you, the director's hand in it, you know, like early on, I was much more into screenwriters because I could recognize words and I could recognize patterns in dialogue and, and story structure and things. But the director thing didn't come until later. And I think Wes Anderson and, and uh, you know, directors like Wes Anderson and Tim Burton, like taught me what a director does, you know, um, because they're so obvious, like they're so apparent what they bring to the table. And so there was an aspect of that too, of me learning what filmmaking, how filmmaking worked and what directors did. But then just the story itself just kind of blows me away and, and we're going to, we're going to get into it. But, uh, this movie highly influential, you know, um, influential on, on like scene kids of like the 2005 to like 2008 period. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the development of the real Tenenbaums. You know, Wes Anderson is coming off of Rushmore, which is, you know, wasn't a huge hit, but it was a sort of a cultural phenomenon. And it was certainly because, um, you know, it was all over MTV, as we talked about uh, last last week. And it was, you know, it was it was sort of a slow roaring boil where, you know, it was released in February uh, of 99 wide. And then it just sort of picked up steam and hit DVD and it just sort of like slowly became this cultural phenomenon over the course of the year. And so everyone was really anticipating his next film. He knew that he wanted his next film to be what he was calling his New York family saga. Been, it had been circling in his head since his parents' divorce, um, which was a huge uh, influence on him as a, as, as a kid. So much so that Ethelene 
in the film is an archaeologist just like Anderson's mother. And it was she is so much like Wes Anderson's mother that when his father saw this movie, he was like, is that what you think of me? And Wes Anderson, no matter how much Wes Anderson has told his father that Royal Tenenbaum is not based on him, um, that Royal Tenenbaum is an original character you being used to like push the story forward of this family and his father never believes him thinks that Royal Tenenbaum is what Wes Anderson thinks of his father and has been trying to make it up to Wes Anderson since ever since because he thinks he like royally fucked up his son no pun intended <laughs> um, which, yeah which is a which is a a bummer but um uh, well doesn't uh, Anderson say that he that he had, came in with all these intentions and sat down to write that opening scene where the divorce is announced, where Royal announces the divorce, and that immediately when he started writing the dialogue for Royal, it became a whole other character. Like yeah, the voice, the the lines, everything was like, well, that wasn't my dad at all. And immediately the character started to grow out of that. People like us can believe that, but I guess people like his dad might call bullshit, right? <laughs> right. Like, well, there's got to be some nugget of truth there, though. And uh, but yeah. We know that the uh, character's voice can uh, establish itself, you know, like. Well, yeah, because it, it was instant. It was instantaneous. Wes Anderson said that as he started writing Royal, he knew immediately that he wanted Gene Hackman. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's a whole story about uh, the Gene Hackman of it all um, in a little <laughs> bit. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he wrote this movie. He wanted to um, write a film about the collateral damage done to a family when a marriage falls apart um, and not in a. Not in a uh, a way that sort of like demonizes divorce or anything like that. In fact, I think the movie does the opposite. Um, it 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 actually talks about the benefits of that by the end of the film. Divorce is catharsis, um, almost. Yeah, exactly, exactly the catharsis. But he wanted to talk about it in terms of like this is this is how it affects like everyone else um, as this sort of bomb going off in a family. And Owen Wilson actually contributed the idea of the generation of child geniuses growing up to become adult failures. Um, that was that was all Owen Wilson's influence and, and what his uh, major contribution to the story of the Royal Tenenbaums was. Royal Tenenbaum, the character, was written for Gene Hackman against his wishes. Wes Anderson reached out immediately upon realizing that's who he was writing and wanted to be like, hey... This is who I'm writing it for. I want to get him interested and on board early on because I can't picture anyone else in it. The agent was like, look, he's not going to talk to you until you have a screenplay because, you know, that's just how he is. And, and he's like, OK, so he writes it, finally gets that meeting with Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman isn't interested because, you know, for, for three main reasons. One, there was no money. Um, and we're talking about one of the longest running movie stars at the time. And there was no money. It would have been for scale, which Gene hadn't done in, you know, decades at this point. And he doesn't like it when people write for him because he was like, you don't know who I am. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know me. So, like, don't write for me because that's not fair to me. And Wes Anderson was like, well, I'm not writing you. I'm writing a character that I think you would do a good job playing. And the third reason that Gene Hackman didn't realize at the time, but would slowly realize over the course of the production of the film, is that there was something about Royal that really bothered him. And he couldn't figure it out, and he, he didn't feel any sympathy or empathy for Royal. And, and he didn't understand what that was, but he was like, there's something very, there, there's something about this character that I don't like and I don't want to play. 
And so he turned it down. Um, they talked to Michael Caine about taking the the part. They talked to Gene Wilder about taking up the part. Um, would have loved to have seen Gene Wilder in a Wes Anderson movie, um, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But, um, you know, eventually they were able to, they finished the script and they got it to the agent. And the agent convinced Gene Wilder, a longtime friend, or Gene, Gene Hackman, a longtime friend of Gene Hackman, um, to take the part for scale. Because he's like, I think this is going to be really good for you. I think this is exactly the kind of thing your career needs right now is something like this. Um, I think this could be an awards contender. I really think you should do it. So he finally agrees to do it. And the thing that finally persuaded him is that Wes Anderson commissioned a painting of the Royal Tenenbaum family with Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum in the painting and sent the painting to Gene Hackman. Um, and Gene Hackman was like, wait, so you just like made this painting because you can't see anyone else in this role. All right, fine. I'll do it. Whatever. <laughs> so Gene Hackman and Wes Anderson didn't really work well together. Hackman didn't understand Anderson. He didn't understand why he was so specific about art direction, so specific about the way scenes needed to be performed um and and it was all it was all things that were sort of going against all the training that gene hackman has done his entire life there were moments where they were shooting things um there's a moment in central park wes anderson is like hey um can you stand four feet over to the right so that you're blocking the statue of liberty and gene hackman is like why would you want to block the statue of liberty and he's like because i don't want it to look like new york and Gene Hackman is like, but it takes place in New York. And he's like, yeah, but I don't want it to look like real New York. I want it to look like fake New York. And he's like, so then why are we shooting in real New York? And so it was a lot of like <laughs> them arguing over like stylistic things. Um, and Gene Hackman just totally not understanding. They had a really big falling out where Gene Hackman literally dragged him into the game, the game board closet where uh, Ben Stiller and Gene Hackman have their tete-a-tete. And um uh, basically just tears him a new one. And it is like, you are so pretentious. You're, you're an asshole. Like what you don't know what you're doing. This movie is going to be terrible. And Wes Anderson was just like kind of cool and collected. He's like, okay, Gene, um, you're, you don't mean any of these things. You're just frustrated and you're going to apologize to me tomorrow. Um, and I'm telling you now that I accept your apology and then just left. And and the next day, Gene had cooled down and was like, okay, you're right. I'm sorry that I blew up at you. I didn't mean any of those things. I'm just really frustrated because I've never worked with a director that acts like this. And <laughs> he realized something, which was that when he, Gene Ackman was 12 years old, he was playing outside with a bunch of his friends, um, like neighborhood kids. And his dad drove by and his dad sort of like half-assedly waved at him as he drove by. And Gene Hackman waved back, and he said that was the last time he ever saw his father. To him, he was playing Royal, and Royal was like his father returning to his life and trying to like make amends for leaving him. And Gene was like, I, I don't like playing hmm. this guy because of how hard it was for me to not have a father growing up. Um, and, and I know what that feels like. And I feel like I'm playing that character and I don't, I don't know how to process this. And so Wes Anderson helped him process this and like talked about the end of the movie with him and about like why, you know, how to empathize with this character and, and sympathize with his plights as a character and figure out 
how to how to you know angle into this character despite the fact that he felt like he was playing his own father um and they were sort of like right as rain after that because you know like gene hackman like realized what his issues with the film his real issues were with the film and the character um and then you know of course it 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 got him a golden globe win uh at the end of the day um playing royal tenenbaum um but yeah, it was just crazy what this movie ended up meaning to Gene Hackman um, in the end, despite the fact that he really dragged his feet all the way through the production of this thing. No, that's incredible. And it's yeah. it's a beautiful performance. It's um and I think, you know, for his career it's such a such an amazing career. And like it's only like with age. I'm so it's so great that he's still with us, but like yeah. it is this really beautiful punctuation mark because we just forget welcome to Mooseport. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's uh, it, it's like just layers of love. I mean, it's like you can tell Wes Anderson writing this role for this actor that meant so much to like cinema. And like it's yeah, it, it it's the centerpiece of, of just a, of, of this of this movie, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 So he cast everyone, everyone else around Gene Hackman. Um, he wanted everyone to be from showbiz families, the exact opposite of what he was looking for with Rushmore. But, you know, it worked out with Jason Schwartzman. So he was like, well, let's just do everybody that way this time because it actually feeds into the movie yeah. um, in terms of like them all having that sort of like growing up too fast mentality. Mm. Um, I think could he felt could only aid everyone's performances, including Alec Baldwin, the narrator. So everyone comes from sort of like Hollywood showbiz families with Gwyneth Paltrow's director father. And of course, you know, Ben Stiller and Jerry yeah. Stiller and, and his mom, um, the comedy duo. And uh, and and obviously the um, uh, uh, the Wilsons are themselves. I mean, you know, that's almost cheating because like they're only a, a showbiz family because of Wes Anderson. But they're you know, uh, they're right. new money. Yeah, their new money. Yep. Yeah, totally. Which works out great for Owen Wilson's character, Eli. Sure, yeah. Actually. But uh yeah, so all of that happens and um and I have I have a really funny story about uh Mordecai, but I want to get to it when we get to it in the movie. But yeah, that's that's the Royal Tenenbaums. Bombs. I mean, it is so painstakingly put together mm-hmm. as a film. And and the way that you know, Wes Anderson sort of like pulled all of these strings to like bring everything de- together perfectly and so perfectly that like he cast Gene Hackman not even knowing the sort of personal connection that Gene Hackman was going to end up having to this character mm-hmm. it, it's really a miracle of a movie this thing yeah you, you dream of of making something that can without even trying to have this effect on the people that you're working with that you can actually like work through stuff from your own lives I think yeah yeah Absolutely. Uh, John, any overall thoughts before we get into the, the walkthrough? <laughs> yes. Well, the thing about Royal Tenenbaums that, that I noticed watching, I've noticed watching it a few times over the years, but watching it for this show and really thinking about it, this is the first time I've ever really academically discussed Wes Anderson. It's always just with your friends and everybody agrees <laughs> he's great. And and uh, what's your favorite movie? Kind of talk with him. I, I don't know why. Um, I've never been on a podcast to talk about him or had my own podcast talking about him. But it's, it is... Interesting to see his uh, this big step of progression in in his uh, uh, career as a director and his style and what he's willing to work with, uh, as in talking about things like refusing to use a steady cam on the entire movie. Apparently, um, outside of maybe a couple of little shots, but laying down dolly track all over New York City when uh, 
God, you'd probably save a lot of time and money if you didn't do that, Wes. But begin very you know strict about these rules that over the years he's set more and more rules over his productions, as you could tell just by watching them uh, and seeing these ideas that come in later, like a rigidity of composition and uh, his his trademark symmetry. It's not all there. The the, sym- the symmetrical idea of Wes Anderson isn't quite there yet with this movie. There's a lot of off center compositions. And things that you go, wait, later on, he would have everybody sitting on a couch or something or some way. But uh, and some of the camera movements are a little bit shakier and a little bit off track compared to what you get later. That's the the notable thing to me is and one of the things that makes it my favorite movie uh, of his is that it's very close to being Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson and not quite there yet. I kind of always like artists when they're in that spot where. They're not, okay, this is how I do it. This is how I do it every time. And everybody knows the score. Let's go do this. This one, he's still searching. And I think that you feel a lot more humanity in the characters as well as, uh, uh, than you do from maybe even his very next movie, you know, uh, because he's searching as a filmmaker, everyone's searching for character and everything just feels a little bit more exploratory and real, uh, that that's just, that's the basic note that I got the overarching note that I got from watching it this time was that I, I like that he's still feeling for himself as a, as a director and it, and you can feel it through the whole movie and through all the performances as well. Yeah. There's something really magical about these first three movies for me, where it's like when mm-hmm. you're in, when you're an early artist, you have nothing but your yourself to pull from. And especially with Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, it really feels like we're just, diving deeper into Wes Anderson's soul almost and just how he sees the world. And we, we open with it's, it's perfect. A, a, a book on a table, uh, mm-hmm. like a JD Salinger looking like paperback of the Royal the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We didn't mention this with Rushmore, um, which I, I regret because I, I had wanted to, but it never, it never came up um, naturally. The beginning and ending of Rushmore opening with curtains opening mm-hmm. like a play and then mm-hmm. then at the end it closes with cur- with curtains as if to suggest that the movie itself is a play about max fisher's life mm-hmm. that's why it's like kind of exists in this heightened reality because it's not reality it is max fisher's reality mm-hmm. and here once again we have the book and this whole movie feels like a novel like an adaptation of a novel that doesn't exist Sure. It's novelistic in its scope. It's novelistic yeah. in the way it deals with time. Uh, yeah. It really feels like we are getting the complete story of these people's lives told yeah. in and out of order. Yeah, yeah. Where you're, where you're like, something happens and you're like, okay, I need to explain that. And then you go back and you show the flashbacks explaining that. And in a book, in a novel, that shit happens constantly in a novel because you're you're only bringing things up when it becomes important, right? And and it And you're telling the story and you're only telling things as it matters and that's not typically how a movie works usually you do a lot of setup and payoff and that's not necessarily how a novel works all the time that's the big difference between screenwriting and 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 um uh novel writing but like here he he and Owen Wilson wrote this screenplay to feel like a novel and sort of dip into that and it cost them because there are 250 scenes in this movie it's like more than twice the amount of scenes in Rushmore 
Um, and everything was so intricately designed that it's it raised the price exponentially for this movie. And the reason why they could only pay scale for the large ensemble was because they're like, look, we have 250 sets to build. Like, <laughs> we can't pay you anything more than scale. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, everybody. Run a, run a boat at, at yeah. some point. Like a, yeah, a ship. absolutely. I think that on the subject of the novelistic approach to storytelling and the chapters, here we get chapter headings, mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, in, in Rushmore, we get months, right? And mm-hmm. I think that this is, and I'm certainly not saying he's lifting this, but he might have felt freed by Tarantino's approach to storytelling that came you know, a few years earlier. And that Tarantino has this novelistic approach to screenwriting as well. He believes in he believes in it. He thinks it's a better way to tell a story mm-hmm. and being very rigid to the old like three acts or eight sequence structure or however you want to put it that screenwriter screenwriting books try to tell you about he's like it's a much more natural way i think for people you know i think he thinks for people to uh take in a story is through these chapters uh and then it frees you up as a writer like you said when when it comes time to tell a story uh about a moment just do it you know it's not going to mess up your structure it's it's going to feel organic and yet we're not i i have you ever tried to sit down and break down Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums into like a three act structure or, 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 or a um, sequence structure? I'm not sure. I never have. I think it would be a challenge. Don't you <laughs> like this movie? The story doesn't even start for 20 minutes or so in this movie. It's very anti screenwriting rules in so many ways. And he gets away with it because it's a great movie. Any faltering in this, he would have gotten torn apart for taking this approach to, to storytelling. Right. So it just goes yeah. to show success success negates uh, gatekeepers, if you know what I mean. So the prologue, we get narration by Alec Baldwin, and uh, we're introduced to the, the, the Tenenbaum family, the children, Chaz, Margot, and Richie. Chaz being the like mini business insider trading guy, not insider trading guy, but uh, Margot, <laughs> the playwright, and Richie, the athlete. And we get our, our first needle drop with this really interesting like orchestral cover of Hey Jude by the Beatles, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Are you familiar with the, the story behind Hey Jude, the writing of it? Hey, hey Jules, I believe was the original title. Uh, Paul writing a song about Julian Lennon, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, specifically uh, a song of comfort written to Julian during uh, his parents' divorce. And mm-hmm. it was it was Paul as a friend writing to Julian like, hey, I know it's hard, but like, don't let it don't carry the world on your shoulder. Don't let it make you hard. The world's still capable of beauty. And so it's a very interesting needle drop to start the movie on. Uh, we, we see the children's lives being rocked by the divorce, but then also just the circumstances of their their childhood. Uh, we see right away warts and all that Royal was a very cold father had a very interesting ways of showing affection. He shot Chaz in the hand with a BB gun and the BB is still lodged. And yeah, like, like a, like a novel, just decades are, are said in like with the narration. And I think the movie, I, I, I like thinking about the relationship between Chaz and, or Margot and Richie, like so low, there's so little time, like traditionally, like of scenes of them, but the film shows us what they mean to each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we get like the divorce happens. Young Richie releases uh, his Falcon Mordecai. Right. Into the, the wilds of New York. There's a, there, there, there's a, um, I think an interesting thing about, about this, cause this movie is, 
incredibly well written from like a character standpoint and the way that the characters sort of interact with each other. There's mm-hmm. like so many moments in this where I'm like, they don't they don't call attention to the fact of like why a certain character is reacting a certain way to another character's like action. Um and and but it's it's all built into like everything we know about these characters and I think it's it's kind of incredible. But like one of the things that I really like about this movie is, you know, Royal makes a lot of mistakes as a father and and you know, inevitably he he leaves and doesn't really come back very often if at all. But like when he's making these mistakes as a father, it's coming from this place of like a man who just like, I don't want to be a father. Like you, you sense this, you have this sense of like, he never really grew up and, and he kind of stumbled into success. Um, but he never really grew up. He never became a man. He never became an adult. And that's exactly what he taught his kids to struggle with. Ultimately. You know, and that's kind of what right. the whole movie's about. Um, and I and I just think that that's kind of amazing that, like, despite the fact that he is not a good father, he still managed to teach his kids something, not something good necessarily, but they still like took something from him as a father. Um, and I and I find that really fascinating and and um, just like man, really good writing, really good character writing. It's amazing that like basically the first thing he says in the movie is an answer to the question of whether it was their fault that they're getting the divorce. And his answer is that, oh, no, of course not. It's, well, yeah, we had to make a few sacrifices <laughs> because we had to, which is saying exactly everything you just said in a one line. Like that's his yeah. first thought is, well, remember what I had to give away to have you? I'm remembering that first. And then, so on top of that, it's like, what a dick is yeah. the first thing you say. You also laugh because it's a hilarious line. It's very in character, even though you don't even know the character yet. And all these things, it's incredible character building. Like right in that moment, I know almost anything I need to know about Royal Tenenbaum just from that line. And and then him trying to shift it back. Whoops, I'll I'll backpedal a little bit and say, oh, no, 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 no. So the last thing, most people would start with the, no, no, of course, it's not your fault. He finishes with it because he does have this self-consciousness enough to know. I need to soften that a little bit for the sake of the kids. There's something to him that there is something soft and human inside of him, but he definitely does not lead with that part of himself. Yeah. Yeah. In the, uh, in the present day, the family has become estranged. Richie has been living a life at sea in the wake of a tennis match meltdown. Chaz lost his wife six months ago and is now like doing safety drills, obsessive safety drills with their sons. One of the only scenes done with like handheld. Like, yeah, which man. which which I really love because it makes it stand out, you know, in in a in a really like real way. Um, that's something that's like a trick Wes Anderson uses often. I think we're going like, to see a lot of it in the next movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's notable. It's the only modern set. True. In the whole movie, too. Uh, the the movie is he talks about how he had them sort of stand still in time. Mm-hmm. There's 22 years that pass, but nobody actually moves out of the time from the beginning of the movie. Right. Uh, short of aging to a certain extent. But then Chaz's place is very modern, very hard, rigid architecture. And, uh, you know, it's probably on Fifth, on Fifth Avenue, Central Park West, whatever. You could kind of picture where it is. And uh, that it's just for that brief moment that you see that he lives that world. And he's got to return you know, his character now has to return to the time that everyone else is stuck in, right? right? Like for the safety, for the warmth of it. And I think that's that's an interesting, you know, with the handheld, it really all stands out. Yeah, right. it's true. Even in the way that he uh, he dresses himself and his sons, Uzi and Artie, uh, or Ari, like the, the Adidas red tracksuits, they're so different from everyone else's really like 
layered, thick New York coats and scarves, you know, mm-hmm. the, the cream browns. Yeah. And it's yeah. so funny. It's it's like, you know, the re- red is the choice because it's the most visible color. It's almost like, I'm surprised they're not wearing like orange jet vest, safety vests, you know. That's, yeah, yeah. To me, that's all. I, I don't know if I heard that or read that somewhere, but that's what I've always understood was the choice for the red was. Because when you're out on the street, it's the thing that people can see the most. Therefore, you're safer. Oh, yeah. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> right. And uh, Margot has been living with her husband, Raleigh St. Clair, played by Bill Murray, who has been uh, doing working on a book about uh, a, a, a boy. Was that Martin Starr? Oh. No, he is from Freaks and Geeks. Oh. He's the he's the kind of really nerdy... They're sort. He's kind of sage nerd that okay. they're friends with. He's oh, always kind of right. sitting on the yeah. He's like sitting on a wall or something all the time, and he always seems to understand what's going on, even though he's definitely in the geek side of things. He he For sure. kind of understands what's going on both sides of the world. But yeah, he wasn't right. in, in Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, he's great. And uh, Ethelene is in an unspoken sort of uh, emotion filled relationship with their accountant Henry, mm-hmm. played by Danny Glover, who <laughs> is great in this. Yeah, the the um the casting of Danny Glover in this, uh, Wes Anderson said that he wanted Danny Glover for this role because one, it's unlike any role that Danny Glover has ever played. But what he liked about that was that Danny Glover, th- this this is a character who could easily be sort of boring and mu- and very much in line with like Bill Murray's character in the movie of just like a sad sack accountant that's just like a bummer Mil- milk toast yeah milk toast absolutely and and so he wanted Danny Glover because he was like Danny Glover comes with the baggage of everything you've ever seen him in so by having him play this role he's immediately not milk toast because you're like, well, there's something else going on with this guy. Like, there's something mm-hmm. else that she sees in him because he's Danny Glover. So, you know, so like there, there's, it, it's just so interesting, this sort of like meta casting that he did with this movie, um, this strategic meta casting that I think works really, really well. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, and, and, and Danny Glover does immediately bring a lot to Henry where you can just, the, the suits are so tight and his, his form is so <laughs> formal that you can just tell like, oh, this is trained or like he's. He, there's something underneath this that's like brimming and it's like usually passion for ethylene which is why i think this relate the relationship is so charming and why the audience yeah. wants it to work which is again it's very helpful for the movie yeah absolutely uh meanwhile royal is getting kicked out of the hotel that he has been squatting at for who knows how long 22 uh, years 22 years the whole time yeah, yeah the whole time. Time. <laughs> uh, we get another great uh guy smoking in an elevator wes anderson shot mm-hmm Okay. This this is around when we we again like that that novelistic approach. He's getting kicked out, and you're like, why is he getting kicked out? And then we flash back to when he was disbarred because of his <laughs> his son, yeah, <laughs> being like he stole my money and is trying to take more of my money just because I started these businesses when I was underage, mm-hmm. um, when I was a minor, and and you know gets gets him disbarred um, through that process. And then we go back and you're like, oh, okay, that's why he doesn't have any money anymore. He's burned through everything that he had left and he can't work. So mm-hmm. it's pretty good. No. Uh, although I did I did always wonder why he didn't just go to another state and get his his license, you know. He's not going to leave New York. the bar in another state. Yeah. He didn't, yeah, he didn't want to leave New York. Jersey, Jersey, come on. It's yeah, right yeah, there. you just go to Jersey. <laughs> just cross the bridge. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, New Jersey actually doesn't exist in Wes Anderson's universe. Oh, so that's okay. what well, I, was, that... I, I was actually going to say. This idea of this fictional New York 
seems to be uh, outside of saying, you know, there's these cartoony ideas of travel, you know, mm-hmm. that we get, we get characters from all over the world in these bits. And then we have Richie, but there's also this feeling that there's no world outside of New York. I don't know why I always feel like it's very insular. Yeah. Like there's no, why wouldn't have all these people have left New York yeah, at this it, point, the way they feel. It's like there's New York and then there's like Calcutta. There's yeah, no in between. Right. There's yeah, like, yeah. yeah you got to cross the seven <laughs> seas to go anywhere outside of New York. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, slowly people start moving in. Chat Chaz moves back into the old house because his mm-hmm. old house isn't safe. Pagoda tells uh, Pagoda the uh, the like the trusty servant or butler of the house, played by returning champ Kumar Padilla, mm-hmm. uh, informs Royal of like about the Henry Atheline thing so royal is uh, getting a doctor visit from the teacher from rushmore yeah mm-hmm. that's just fun. just and just the, returning uh, once again um teacher well, okay, from rushmore so and the bookstore employee from bottle rocket oh that's right and and yeah. he is kumar's son correct well is i didn't right? know that i'm pretty yeah, sure he is yeah yeah okay. i'm pretty sure he is but yeah you're right he was the book he's the guy that very very calmly gets robbed in <laughs> bottle rocket and he's great mm-hmm. his little yeah. bits are just really great Margot moves out of Raleigh's apartment. We get the great. Uh, I just love the TV being tied to the radiator. Just that mm-hmm. amount of detail is so great. Yeah. This is a great Gwyneth Paltrow performance. I mean, it's iconic. It's not just great, it, it, but it might be the best Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow performance. I mean, you know, I, I, I think she's extremely likable and her chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. is incredible in the Iron Man films and the Avengers films. But like, this is her creating a character, and she typically doesn't do that in movies. Like, typically, she's just sort of like, she's the style of actor where it's like, oh, you get Gwyneth Paltrow, and she plays a variation of Gwyneth Paltrow in a thing. Um, and here, she's creating this fully fledged character, um, and uh, and I, I, it's it's something you don't get to see very often from her. Um, and so I, I really, really enjoyed that aspect of her performance in this this film. And Wes Anderson says he remembered she was only on set for 10 days, too. It was like, yeah, they, a lot of these people, they had to like jigsaw the movie together because they were all movie stars doing all these other projects. So he had to like fit their shooting schedules in. And she was only there for 10 days, which is I mean, I don't even remember 10 days anymore. You know, like I'll, I'll, my yeah. work weeks go by so fast. It's like, wow, like, what does that feel like to be a, a performer, create such an iconic character? So impactful. And she's probably like, well, she infamously didn't even remember which uh, which of the Spider-Man movies she was in when she was on John Favreau's cooking right, show that right. one time. She didn't even remember which one. Yeah. Gene Hackman and, and, and Luke Wilson, I believe, were the only two actors that were on set for the full 60 days of the shoot. Mm-hmm. Mm. Gene Hackman, ironically, because he was just like, you're telling me I got, I'm going to get paid scale and I'm going to be here for 60 days. Gene Hackman said he couldn't even remember the last movie that he was on set for that a period of time. Because, you know, typically you get to that level and he's more like a three day player or like, you know, I'm there mm-hmm. for 10 days, like one of Paltrow. But no, mm-hmm. he was there the full 60 days. Um, of this shoot and uh, obviously he went through yeah. a whole emotional experience just, in that period just watching Wes Anderson make notes with like a fountain pen and like a moleskin <laughs> yeah. just yeah. stewing holding a paper cup of yeah. coffee but going back to to what John was saying about like the 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 sort of like um, shooting schedule of this movie uh, it's like yeah this was insane and I do not um, envy the person who had to the producer that had to put that schedule together mm-hmm. because I'm sure it was a nightmare 
trying to like figure all of that out. Um, but on wow. time and under budget. Yeah. It's mirac- like he, it's, he's like, I have no idea how I got this under schedule. <laughs> like yeah. I have no clue, but he did. And he's famous for that. And he's famous for having excess money. Have you ever heard those stories about his, maybe you'll get to that later. He, he has uh, excess money in the budgets for like big dinners for cast and crew and stuff like that. Like yeah. nice ones with good wine and things. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and I heard Jason Schwartzman telling that story. He's like, Oh yeah. He usually rents out like a floor of a hotel near the set. And, we all have dinner with each other every night. And I'm like, how does he find the money for that on these movies? These aren't Marvel movies, but uh, incredible. But he's a, he's incredible. an impressive uh, tactician, like uh, uh, that job of the director, where you're actually directing the crew, not just directing the art form. You know, right? Uh, he's apparently right. a master of that too. <clears throat> yeah, uh, the family slowly starts coming home. Margot comes home. Richie journeys home, and uh, we get. One of the uh, a, a very iconic scene from the movie, uh, Margot stepping out of the bus to Nico's these days as they're locking eyes. And it does a movie's worth of work in in one scene where you you believe the relationship, you believe the yearning, the unspokenness and that, yeah, these two have been in love with each other their entire lives. And you don't need a scene of, of them making pancakes in the kitchen together or, you know, talking <laughs> right. about the old days because like the look and the faith in the actors and the the slow motion and the music cinema all coming together to tell a complete relationship. Mm-hmm. Early in the uh, screenwriting process, the story of of these two characters were that they were actual brother and sister. Um, and that uh-huh. this was, this was a, uh, sort of like a taboo thing that sure. they, that's why, you know, um, toward the end of the film, she's like, I guess we're just going to be in love with each other and, um, you know, uh, unrequited love with each other forever mm-hmm. because like we, obviously we can't, you know, but it wasn't, it was the, the studio that was just like, okay, we're not going to ask you to change anything. But please change this. <laughs> like, yeah. Please just make her adopted so that we, and, this this is not a taboo thing. And it's and it and then in that way becomes my adopted daughter Margot. Right. Right. Which, which, which adds got, a whole other layer to her character. Mm-hmm. So and yeah. got a lot. Of, every time I saw this movie in the theater, all of the lines about her being adopted got big laughs. Yeah. Just the way they're specifically the first one, but as you go along, it becomes a running gag that everyone and everybody would laugh. Their asses off every time something. Yeah. Even when it's you know she's your sister oh, adopted. Oh, that's true. That got a big laugh. I don't know why, but that it, it's funny. That's a really good studio note in the end. Yeah, yeah. One of the yeah uh, one that actually added added to the movie. Yeah. So mm-hmm. everyone's under one roof. Royal pitches his lie to the family that he's dying, mm-hmm. and uh, everyone reacts in their own way. And it's 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 such the characters already feel so lived in. This early into the movie, Chaz is like performatively despondent and doesn't give a shit. And mm-hmm. Richie is concerned. Margot is curious. Like she has right. questions, but she was, she's not like concerned. And uh, yeah, the family is all under one roof for the first time in, in a long time. Wes Anderson does this really interesting thing where he takes what is ostensibly a very simple movie, co- like story concept story concept of like estranged father fakes a deathly illness to like get back in in line with his family right and it it feels very like i can picture a very basic movie about that 
right? Sure. And he does this a lot with a lot of his movies where where it, it's these kinds of stories. But then he surrounds it with this all of these like quirky eccentricities and and insane art direction. And I just I find that <clears throat> the core screenwriter in him, this core storyteller in him is a very basic sort of storyteller but he 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 fleshes these things out in a way that are so specific to him and i think that that's why he's such an accessible filmmaker despite the way that his films look he doesn't look like he should be an accessible filmmaker but he absolutely is um and i and i find that really interesting about him as as a filmmaker yeah when you, when you listen to him actually we don't get to hear him talk a whole lot these days back in right. the Old days, he'd do a lot of commentaries. I don't know if he still does, but you certainly don't see a lot of interviews. And um, he could easily come off as this pretentious guy. But when you listen to him talk, a lot of the times you're like, oh, this is just a dude from Texas. Yeah, I actually kind of know this guy. <laughs> he just happens to have all these interests that are um, very culturally refined, right? But there's the scene where we're right in that spot in the movie. There's the scene where where Royal announces the lie to Ethylene, where he – says I'm dying, I'm not really dying, I'm dying. Uh and, and he says in the in the Criterion collection commentary, he goes, I got this idea from uh, an episode of Rockford Files I remembered seeing when I was a kid. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like Rockford Files. There's always these little things in the in the in Fantastic Mr. Fox, the helicopter is the helicopter from Magnum PI. Like we see a flight around yeah. like, why does he have he has these interests that are real basic, like network television interests as well, buried down deep yeah. under all of this. And I think that's part of his charm. Like, if he was actually this pretentious guy, so many people uh, accuse him of being, nobody would see his movie. I, very, very few, I should say. He's right. a very popular filmmaker. Yeah. He's, I always joke that he's this art house Steven Spielberg. Like, he puts his movies out in the summer. And I've worked at art house theaters when his movies came out, and they're the hit of the year every single time. Yeah. People love it yeah. because they see, I think they see that humanity, that kind of basic humanity in him, and, and that enjoy the quirks and the foibles of the characters that come out of the more like culturally refined part of him yeah yeah uh, a brief note on character we haven't had a chance to get into yet uh eli cash played by owen wilson the uh the sean from boy meets world of the tenenbaum family uh, roger <laughs> yeah. from roger from sister sister if you will yes so eli to me is fascinating because I believe him to be the inverse of the Wes Anderson aesthetic that we've seen so far. We've been talking for three episodes now, listeners, that Anderson is a Texan that has uh, an affinity for metropolitan uh, Parisian class, you know, and he is kind of covering the stark Texas landscape of his youth with, you know, pictures of a smoky coffee house in Paris or a, a, a cloudy New York hotel. And Eli Cash is the opposite. He is the kid from New York, but he is obsessed with the Wild West and he wears a cowboy hat and a jacket with fringe and fancies himself like a frontiersman or a gunfighter. And I yeah. just thought that was really interesting. He's doing anything he can to get the attention of the Tenenbaums, I think. That's what I've always kind of that's his that's his drive, right? As a character is to get there. Yeah. He became a novelist, no <clears throat> doubt, because they were all wrote books. I've got to write a book. I've got to get their attention somehow. And uh, the only way to do that in New York is to be a Texan or something, right? Like, how do I stand out to these uh, New Yorkers across the street? I'll, I'll be a cowboy. It's, uh, yeah. I always thought it was, that's a really funny character. Characteristic well, as, and works. 
as as someone whose whose family is from New York, but yet all moved to Texas, um, you know, from Long Island, uh, moved to Texas where I was born and were <laughs> very Italian. But then if you looked around their house, it was all like cowboys and like all yeah, this yeah. like Texas stuff. This like really kind of spoke to me in a weird way. It, 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 it This is a real thing like where, you know, no matter where you're from, you sort of covet the opposite of that. Um, and, and as you were saying, Nick, Wes Anderson being from Texas, coveting these things, these metropolitan things, someone who is metropolitan would obviously covet Texas as like this sort of like, oh, wide open spaces and freedom and like being able to do whatever, you know? Um, what if Custer and- survived? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I just, uh, that's, that's maybe the most famous line in the whole movie. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> that, that might be. Oh yeah. You, yeah. Like, this book presupposes, presupposes this. become a very yeah. common word. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's iconic line reading from, from Owen Wilson. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And um, we, we yeah. get, uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie, if not my favorite part of the movie, Royal attempting to reconnect with his grandsons. Um, the scene in the, in the roof where they're in the gym and he's like, Hey, can you tell your dad that you want to hang out with me? Like, or that we want to meet. I was like, but we did meet. I know I want you to, the first thing he does is he tells his grandkids to lie for him. Yeah. And it's, it's pitch perfect. Everything Chaz thinks about Royal is true. Like everything that he's worried about is actually true. He is going to endanger his children. He is going to corrupt his children. Uh, I think it's really because Chaz comes off as like over the top, right? Uh, A little over careful. No, he's right on the money about Royal, actually, which I think is a, also a funny beat. For sure. Yeah. Have we gotten the uh, the dinner scene? Has that happened? Where they're, oh. all, they're all sitting together at dinner and, uh, and, and Chas is, um, is calling him Mr. Henry. And he's like, you can just call him Henry. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, no, I don't know him. You've known him for 10 years. Like, yeah. As your accountant, Mr. Henry. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, that scene, um, I, there's this moment in that scene that I really love where he was like, he was like, he's not part of our family. He's our accountant. And then Gwyneth Paltrow is like, don't talk to him like that. And I love that because (laughs) she's like, she's, she knows what that feels like. She knows what Mm, it feels like to be told you're not part of this family. And she's like, don't talk to him like that. I love her Mm. weird, this like unspoken connection she has with him because he's Mm -hmm. this outsider who's entering this family and she knows exactly what that feels like and what that journey is going to feel like. Um, and I, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think this, this screenplay is so good with character. Yeah. And and so rich and rewards revisiting Mm -hmm. again and again. And, you know, like a novel, picking up and finding these characters again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I love them visiting Maddox Hill Cemetery, uh, visiting not, not only the, the grandmother's grave, but the, uh, Ben Slaughter's wife's grave. Sorry for your loss. Your mother was a terribly attractive woman. (laughs) we have another body buried here he says oh yeah we have another body buried we got another body yeah the way yeah the the way royal talks about cemeteries is is amazing yeah oh and then like going back to the the novelistic you know we find out how Margot lost her finger she went to go visit her birth family and they were just living out in the in the boonies and i think andrew wilson i think that was andrew wilson yeah it is uh, accidentally cuts off the tip of Margot's finger Andrew Wilson, who has a dual role, I believe, in this movie, because I think he's also the voice of the tennis, uh, announcer? tennis announcer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wrote that because I know one of them sounds a lot like Jason Schwartzman. 
It's Wes Anderson. Uh, oh, it's Wes Anderson. The one that Great. sounds like Schwartzman is Wes Anderson. Great. Who says everybody thinks I'm Jason Schwartzman in this? In this. Yeah, movie. and then it's I was me. so sure that um, I was like, God, there's no way because I thought Andrew Wilson sounded a lot like Owen Wilson, and I was like, Oh, why would they cast Owen Wilson in this cameo when he's already in the movie? Like, Oh, it was Andrew. That makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That that is weird because like this movie now features three of like the four states that my family like are part of because it's because that's huh? Indiana. So it's like, mm-hmm. so you've got, you've got Indiana, you've got New York, you've got Texas. The only thing that's missing is Florida, which I don't think, I don't think Florida has ever come up in a Wes Anderson movie. I Wes don't know. Anderson's Florida would be very interesting. I would, yeah. I, I was just would, thinking How that. would he portray Florida? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you no might idea. get one quick snippet. Like you might get a guy from Florida with Florida in the background for one second, like a, like uh, ethylene suitors, you know, like that kind of a moment, yeah. maybe. But I don't, I can't see him setting a movie down there. The dad from Rushmore makes an appearance as mm-hmm. Dusty, the elevator operator, yeah, who, who pretends to be Royal's doctor and gives yeah. him like the stomach cancer prognosis. And Royal moves into Richie's room with all of the uh, the medical equipment mm-hmm. inside of it, and Richie sleeps in the in the t- in a tent. <laughs> I love that that scene where uh, Margot learns that Eli sends all of his clippings to uh to, to ethylene because he's like look like acknowledge me be proud of me i like that she doesn't think anything of it, uh ethylene yeah so unmoved by of it. that yeah <laughs> yeah she, like, well she i mean i think she's she's just a sweet lady i think she's just like sure he's a kid that grew up in my house i mean my parents would probably be the same way like i had friends when i was a child i'm not really friends with them anymore but certainly they would they would consider themselves sort of second parents to him and he didn't have a, a any parents he lived with his aunt you know so we don't even know where his parents are right they never even say all right. they say is it's his aunt yeah. who's apparently a seamstress or something that lives across the street and uh so it totally makes sense that his character would look for a mother look for a father but i i do like angelica yeah. Houston. she's like what yeah he sends me his clippings it's super weird but not to her meanwhile royal is having a ball with his grandsons mm-hmm. and a great montage of them just causing trouble because like scott said at the beginning royal has never grown up fully he's right. he's still this shit kicking little kid so the family members he vibes with the most hard are his two grandsons mm-hmm. and it's a really beautiful montage oh no no don't worry that's just dog's blood <laughs> yeah. yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> we shouldn't forget that richie went to the dog fights with him too richie right, yeah. was the uh mix it up kind of kid too unlike chaz obviously right he would so, he would unabashedly like deny margo and chaz and openly like hang out with with richie more and like richie was clearly like see, so- that makes me want to look at it from royal's point of view for a second though because every time i'm like i feel sorry for those kids but you know chaz would just be a, a stick in the mud the whole time about going to the dog fights and ride the go-karts uh, so yeah. i can see why it's, it's not just that he's being cruel necessarily it's that they're not down with what i'm down with richie's down with it well it's also like if you look at the three kids and what they get into margo is a playwright Chas mm-hmm. is uh is into like um uh investments, right? Uh and, and then, science, and then apparently. Rich, Richie plays sports. Like though like mm-hmm. a- as someone who as as a guy who is sort of like in this perpetual state of of childhood, right? The one that he's going to relate the most to is the one who does sports. So so it makes perfect sense that that like two of his, two out of the three of his kids are more grown up and adult than he is. Mm-hmm. They're growing up way too fast. He can't keep up with their growth. Richie's not. I mean, they talk about the genius, the three, they kind of always refer to him as his three genius. He's not a genius at all. He's a failed painter and a tennis player, which there's a 
you could argue there's a certain amount of genius to being a great tennis player, but it's not yeah. the same. So you're right. Like Richie uh-huh. is kind of Richie. Also, he hasn't even taken off the damn headband. You know, he's clearly not growing up either. And he definitely is Royal son where the other two, she got a Braverman grant at what in ninth grade. Come on. That's right. just like, you're growing up too fast and Royal couldn't keep up with that. And he was probably intimidated by it. And, uh, Gave him some lack of self-adequacy, probably, seeing his kids be so successful, where, you know, he, he's a pretty good lawyer, and that's about it. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Family finds out that uh, Royal has been lying uh, through through Henry. He's like, hey, you don't find out you, have, you don't have stomach cancer and eat three cheeseburgers a day with fries. My wife had this. Um, he gets kicked out. <laughs> the biggest laugh of the movie for me and another Anderson motif, a, a certain a sudden burst of violence. Uh, where Pagoda stabs Royal for the second time. <laughs> yeah, and, and Royal That's the last time you put yeah, a knife inside with the me. tiniest blade of the of the Swiss Army knife too. By the way, that's like the thinnest part. Like, yeah, he definitely wasn't going for the kill. And <laughs> yeah, then Royal's immediate like acceptance that it happened. He's still angry, and you're like, you're not going to do that again. But they just like it's like an old dance that they do, where he yeah. just like immediately carries him. Uh, it's great. Uh, uh. so we get uh. One of my favorite parts of the movie, uh, Rally has hired a private detective to follow Margot. Mm-hmm. That we didn't know this has been going on for like the whole movie is that so he's been following him around and then invites uh, Chaz and Raleigh to uh, his office. And we get Margot's file and uh, we get the Judy is a punk montage. Uh, first time I heard Judy is a punk changed my life. And <laughs> this 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 uh, montage kind of changed my life because the the joke is in the way that it's being told. Like mm-hmm. the delivery, how like crazy her life has been, but then the artifice of it's still very like clean of like age nineteen, age twenty five, age twenty nine, with the music, and it just like, you know, like as watching it for the first time, I was like, what? This is so funny and cool, and and the, uh, the way that it's being told was so interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I love, I love this sequence. I love, I think more than any other character, I think her. You know, for lack of a better term, her sort of like cutaway gags in the movie are the best ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're the I think they're the funniest because she's so <laughs> Margo is so like well, she's such a straight faced. Yeah, and she's such a mystery. Like she she yeah. keeps so many secrets from the family. No one knows that she smokes. No one knows about right. all of her. She's like has the most mystery and depth. So it's like, yeah, yeah. So like going back to like the Indiana one when she gets her finger cut chopped off. It's like you cut back and they're like, you didn't want to like sew it back on. And she was like, it didn't seem worth it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just uh, like, what? <laughs> I was obsessed with, uh, they, they recreate the shot where they're, they're all in a group receiving news as a family. But then yeah. Margot is always still in the frame, but like off in the corner, like distant yes. from everyone else. And it cracks me up every time. I love that. Yeah, it's so good. There's um, one thing I think of with her too. Early in the movie, her, her twice her foot is kind of a, a, a small joke, right? Where there's and, and it's done in the editing, so a lot like our, our old friend Edgar Wright, who we like to talk about as well. So much of the humor that uh, Wes Anderson is just done with editing. There's not don't if you don't cut it just right, this won't be funny at all. But if you do it just right, it's hilarious. And there's something about how long he takes to let her do things with her foot, right? So she lets Raleigh in, she reaches her foot out, slowly undoes the lock, and then immediately cuts to Raleigh's face coming in. Same with when uh, when uh, Ethelene tells her to turn the TV off. The foot comes into the frame, hits the button, and right on the click, it cuts away, and we go back to the scene. I don't know why, but those are like the subtlest little buttons on a joke 
I don't know how to explain that. It's just that he's got this way. And, you know, he's sitting in the editing room like, no, no, no. We got to don't cut there. Just let her foot come into the frame and get all the way to the yeah. button. Yeah. It's a, uh, I don't know. That's kind of stuff. The all... little driest bits of humor in the editing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Richie taking the news about Margot's infidelity. Because, yeah, we find out that one of the men that Margot has been with is Eli at, at some point. They at least made out on a bus. Presumably they had sex, I guess. I freaking hope so, considering how what Richie does. I mean, you know. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> true. Uh, we get another iconic sequence of the movie. Richie attempting to take it. Well, shaving all of his body hair, his hair and his, and his beard off. And then, you know, cutting his wrist open to Elliot Smith's needle in the hay. Which yeah. is, uh, you know, like one of the five scenes that people always talk about when bringing up this movie. And this, this yeah. very effective needle drop. I think well, this might have been one of the most sort of at the time for me one of the most like shocking suicide attempt mm-hmm. uh depictions in a film like this was really hard to watch and really affecting and lasts for a while because later when he shows the stitches it is i mean it 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 gives me it gives me that like that like like the oopsie dropsies you know like that sure. sort of like that feeling of the like vertigo ah, yeah gah, yeah like where you just you get like these like full body chills of like oh god that is so scary and like it 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 it's it's a rough one honestly it's yeah, it's a really rough you one you know uh john you brought up tarantino a few however however long ago and you know that that director certainly has his own relationship with violence and uh, the showmanship of it, the performance of it. And I think Anderson also has a very intimate understanding of violence, but like Scott said, the brutality and the discomfort of it, of like the stark, like, uh, you don't, the human brain doesn't like seeing like a pool of blood on a, on a, on a kitchen floor. You're in a yeah. bathroom floor. Yeah. It's a tonal thing too. And it's the, one of the things that I think actually really makes him stand out as a great filmmaker, not just a, a really good Wes Anderson, if you get what I mean. Like, Wes Anderson's got a style. He sticks to it. And we know Wes Anderson movies, Wes Anderson movie. What takes it beyond and what I often contend with people who don't give him credit for this is he's not afraid to get super real all of a sudden. And he'll make a tonal shift like mm-hmm. this. And he's very conscious of it. It's shot in that stark, like, neo, uh, uh, fluorescent lighting style. He does these weird jump cuts that are kind of horror like like when it jumps back to him having a beard again real quick it's like well that's like a horror cut he understands exactly what the yeah. what kind of emotion he's trying to get out of this moment and it doesn't match the rest of the movie but that's exactly what it should do it shouldn't match the rest of that movie mm-hmm. we actually go wait real humanity holy shit this is and he does it again later with Chaz, where Chaz finally breaks down and he does it all the time, and people are always like, his movies are so cold, they're so methodical plotting, and I'm like, there's never been a movie where I have, a Wes Anderson movie, where at some point it didn't punch me in the gut or get me, like, teary, honestly. Yeah. Never understood, I never understood the unemotional filmmaker criticism of Wes Anderson. Well, I actually think it it almost becomes more human and more realistic in yeah. that we as mm-hmm. people rarely say the best thing in the moment. Or we're rarely able to communicate what we're actually feeling to a person that we care about. Yeah. And uh, in the wake of uh, Richie's suicide attempt, when the family all rallies together 
uh, no pun intended to the hospital there it's awkward and uncomfortable and you can the actors are so fucking good you can feel the emotion inside of them and in the eyes especially angelica houston but like they're not able to say the right thing like they are in your typical like heart-wrenching suicide attempt scene in a movie right or, like, the like most, especially chaz <laughs> yeah yeah chaz is chaz's focus on the suicide note of like yeah, was do it you dark? have it do you remember what you wrote can you tell me what you wrote like just like yeah, trying to focus on note. something yeah. Um, because but he, he wants I to think understand. He cares. Yeah. Exactly. He, he I can, think he, he cares. cares. He, Absolutely. Yeah. He just he wants to understand yeah, they, his brother. He wants to understand because he yeah. lost his wife in an accident. And he's like, I can't mm-hmm. fathom. All I think about is wanting to stay alive. I can't fathom wanting to kill my end my life. Yeah. So like I need to understand this. Please explain it to me. And uh and it's great. And it feels it feels so much more like a real sibling relationship to me. Where like I said, like I you know I love my brother, but I can't I haven't had a ton of like heart to heart here's what you mean to me conversations. Right. But there there's still that connection and relationship that's there. Yeah. And uh yeah the scene where Royal is denied entry into the hospital mm-hmm. uh is is super it's heartbreaking but then he comes right back out and 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 richie has already excused himself from the hospital he's checked out right. yeah. yeah i um you know going back to the sto- sort of style thing and and the violence that just sort of appears in a, in a wes anderson film you know i i think that the thing that i i really like about it is it is arresting and i think that you know especially in the case of this with the suicide attempt what I like about the way that he does this is you have this very distinctive style and you get lost in that style, the way that you sort of just get lost in your day-to-day life and the way things are. And then when somebody does something like this, it shakes you because you're like, wait, that doesn't belong here. Like, that's mm. not, I, I can't, I can't fathom this because like it, what do you mean they're dead? Like, what do you mean they, 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 they attempted suicide? Like, no, that's not how the world, that's not how the world that I saw is, you know? And so the fact that like you have this very distinctive Wes Anderson style that is disrupted by this violence, by this suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it, it adds to that emotionality of like what this really feels like when this happens in either to you or around you to the people that you care about around you that you've been taking for granted you know yeah the moment where the the artifice is is lifted so to speak it makes you really interested to go forward into like darjeeling limited and grand budapest hotel because i think those movies do similar things with violence yeah and yeah that jostling of something tragic happening happening yeah uh the scene with richie and margo in the tent is is great um just so yeah, so, and it was it was in this scene where I realized like, oh my god, I'm so in with them and I'm so invested in them, and like we haven't had all this bullshit that of like we don't need scenes like, well, what about their relationship? How do we build up their relationship? Because like you've already yeah. done that with her stepping out of the bus and like the movie's been it's, doing its job. It's heart. It's a heart wrenching scene because you know again, like you were talking about earlier, Nick, when they were in the hospital, Margot once again is sort of like off to the side. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and 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 so you're getting everyone else's reaction, but she's just sort of staring at him mm-hmm. and is obviously scared and sad, you know, but we don't really get 
what that means from her until mm-hmm. this tent scene um, where she's just in the tent waiting yeah. for him or he just wants to be around his things and him um, and surround herself with him because she's like, oh, my God, I almost lost him um, mm-hmm. and I do love him. And I got to say the kiss between them. Really good kiss. Like, you know, movie kisses are, are hit and miss. This is a really good movie kiss. Like this was excellent. Um, it's, it doesn't have, it doesn't fall into, uh, I think some of the sort of like, you know, some movie kisses, they just don't feel real. This feels like a real kiss. Um, and, and I, I, I was like, that's, there, there's some good chemistry between these two, these two actors and, and these two characters. Um, it's, it's a really excellent scene. Yeah. The, the, the moments where Margot breaks down for the first time and really lets her artifice fall where she's like, was it, was it because of me? And he's like, yeah, but it's not your fault. Like they're so intimate with each other that there's no lying or guarding in, yeah. in this like little sanctuary cocoon that they made for themselves. Yeah. Ah, beautiful scene. Uh, Mordecai, uh, no, uh, uh, Royal and Pagoda become elevator operators with Dusty. Um, Richie comes to visit to ask for advice about the, uh, the Margot situation that uh, they have a conversation up on the roof. Uh, Royal's like, well, it's frowned upon, but what is it these days? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> the elevator operator job application interview situation is such a signature Wes Anderson, like worldview moment hmm. because in his world, he like Wes Anderson definitely wants everything to be okay. Like, he loves to finish his movies where everybody kind of comes to terms, even if it's not simple, even if it's not perfect, everybody's kind of come to terms with things. And it's, he had such an antagonistic relationship with this concierge guy, right? Or this hotel manager guy. But well, now that that's all out of the way with the bill and everything, he's more than willing to hire <laughs> right. him to work there. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I, I'll let you know, but you could tell right then and there he's going to get hired. It's like, well, that's yeah. such an interesting. Because again, I think, you know, he's around for 22 years. He's got to like kind of miss him, you know, because like, how could you not when somebody well, he, is around for that long? You know, He knows the hotel inside and out. He's lived there for yeah. 22 years. Absolutely. He's overqualified for an, uh, an elevator operator. I think you could. Probably he's going to be competent, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's yeah. just such a funny moment because like that doesn't most movies would continue. You want to continue the antagonism and, and he, he does it. He actually wants everybody to be friends. There, there's a decency and a morality that pervades all of Anderson's work. I mean, you know, there's multiple uh, Peanuts Christmas special needle drops in this. And yeah. right, we, right. we brought up Peanuts before on the series. And that also is a world that has a, you know, goodness is part of the marrow of that world. <clears throat> Right. And I think Anderson's world is the same, or even as we start going into topics like, you know, self-harm and war and death, there is this like, well, ultimately we will shake hands and find common ground and, yeah. and solace with one another. I think, I think the line in his entire filmography that sums up all of his movies is the line in Bottle Rocket when Owen Wilson says, we really didn't, did it, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. every, Wes, you can end every Wes Anderson movie with a character being like, we really did it, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Job well done. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is the scene where, where Mordecai returns. So, so Mordecai returns and he comments on the fact that like he has some white, white more white in his feathers and he's like, well, you know, when mm-hmm. people go through traumatic events, you know, mm-hmm. they get white in their hair. So maybe this is similar. So what actually happened is that um, when the when they when they let the original the original Mordecai go um, early in the film, 
uh the the plan was like the next day they were shooting like this scene um mm. that was like the the mordecai scene when he lets him go uh was the last day that he was shooting the long hair look for richie okay. um and then the next day they were going to shoot because they only wanted mordecai for like you know a couple of days they didn't want to have to pay for a hawk for like you know a lot a, lo- a lot of time so this happens mordecai but- leaves a guy in New Jersey ste- find, like catches Mordecai, steals it, and holds it for ransom, and is like, "You're gonna have to pay me like you know ten thousand dollars to get this bird back." And they and the 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 crew was just like, "No, we'll just get a different bird. Fuck you, man. Good luck with your hawk." And so. <laughs> And so the guy didn't get any money and now has a hawk and they just went and got another Mordecai and then wrote that line about like explaining away the the white feathers, the extra white feathers. But it gives you this whole like what happened to Mordecai between then and now. Like yeah. some, it, it always makes me think there's some adventure story involved in and, that. And it becomes another – it feels like something out of a novel where it's not quite perfect where even like – it's so beautiful how Royal really wants it to be Mordecai but – Richie's just like, well, I'm not sure. He's got really different feathers. Like, yeah, there's just something uh, about that. I can't. Uh, <laughs> R- Royal takes Margot to uh, what she always wanted to do when she was seven. Uh, go to this like ice cream parlor, this like daddy daughter ice cream parlor. And uh, it's really beautiful. You know, there is this um, there's a Taylor Swift song called uh, This Is Me Trying, where that's what it's about is like, I just wanted you to know that this is me trying. And I think that's what Royal's been doing this whole movie is he just want, like there's a scene where he's in the elevator with Richie and he's like, yeah, I'm just I'm trying to remake myself and show that I can make it on my own. I just hope someone notices. Mm-hmm. I just want someone to see that I give a shit. And that's what he's trying to communicate with all of his kids. You know, we we missed we missed what is my favorite line in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's related to this, which is him being like, as he's leaving, he says, you know, this has been the best six days of my life. And then Alec Baldwin is like, and the the second that he finished saying it, he realized it was true. Um, and it I, is I the get, best I line like, of the movie. I, That's I get the- full body chills <laughs> just thinking about that because it's so good. Mm-hmm. Like it's so in character for him to just say it because like it's manipulative and whatever and then realizing as soon as he says it oh shit that's actually true mm-hmm. these have been the best 6 days of my life yeah. and you Incredible. see and you see the epiphany on Hackman's face yeah oh yeah. man it's so it's good. literally his character's transformation in a moment done through the performance and then with a line that's hilarious yes it's darkly hilarious but it's also like really sad it's yeah. such a deep character moment and it's like that's that's to me that's Wes Anderson yeah. That moment and you is know, Wes Anderson. That's yeah. one of the great – he has this grasp on comedy and, and pathos that mm-hmm. very few people do. And, you know, we haven't brought, it, brought him up much, but, like, Alec Baldwin adds a lot to this movie. Like, credit where credit's due. His voice is, like, iconically the Royal Tenenbaums to me. Well, you know, going back to metacasting, and this was even before he was Jack Donaghy, but there, right. there is something just so New York about his presence and his voice. Yeah, that I think it feels like the city itself is narrating. Funnily enough, you bring up Jack Donaghy. He based a lot of his performance early on. Obviously, it evolved after Mm -hmm. that. But especially if you go back to the pilot, he based Jack Donaghy on Gene Hackman's character of Royal Tenenbaum. Right. Like he's a little early on. Yeah, right. He was doing an impression of sort of like Gene Hackman's character um, because he was so impressed with his performance in this movie. Is this the discovery of Alec Baldwin as a voiceover artist? I'm trying to 
Remember if he had done any – how much money that this performance made him in the long run in commercials? Because we all knew it's Alec Baldwin. Mostly I thought of him as these eyes, you know, like yeah. when he was young. And then uh, he had a, he was just a good actor. And then this voice comes through this movie. And I remember thinking like, hey, that's Alec Baldwin. I know that voice. Yeah. And that distinction and what he brought to this movie, I guarantee got him a lot of commercials, a oh, lot yeah. of you know, other voice work. And uh, I, I don't know for sure that if this is the first time he really did voice work. but. I, I remember it that way, but yeah, he is perfect for this oh, this movie. So good, no doubt. Um, we already I already mentioned my my one of my favorite lines in the movie where he uh you know throws rocks at the wind you know gets the grandson's attention is hey anybody up for grabbing a couple burgers and hitting the cemetery <laughs> <laughs> again kind of like humor and pathos life and death in, mm-hmm, in yeah. one sentence uh and to his credit he goes he goes by himself they don't come but he goes mm-hmm. by himself and visits Rachel not mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. his mother. He visits their mother, yeah, um, someone yeah. who he barely knew, but mm-hmm. he he still goes and he pays the most respect that he possibly can as as the type of person that he is. It's it's and it's an up, and, up. and it's an unseen act, right? Right? Yeah. Well, it's up to the moment mm-hmm. of the realizing that it's true. Line, his transformation is all performative. It's all surface. It's all f- to get his atten- the attention he seeks. Toward uh, and you know towards his own a uh, means towards his own end, uh, and now it's actually a real transformation. You're starting to see, oh no, he's actually he's actually becoming more selfless. He's actually gone through a transformation here. He's not doing this for anybody. Nobody's going to know he did this, and yeah. so we see it the transformation in action. There's a real um, fake it till you make it quality to Wes Anderson characters. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. mean, you go you go back to Owen Wilson and Bottle Rocket. You go to Max Fisher, uh, or Max Fisher, and then here with with Royal Tenenbaum, and to a certain extent Eli. But like, you know, right, yeah. I, I don't know that he ever makes it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, there there he 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 seems to be uh, very charmed by fake it till you make it kind of characters. Characters that build up their own mythology. I mean, I mean, yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a right, lot like right. Royal Tenenbaum. Right. And I and I think that that comes from Wes Anderson feeling that way about himself, about being a Texan with dreams of this metropolitan life. And right. he's like, well, I just have to, like, make that for myself and 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 fake it until I, I am that. And now he is no one associates him with Texas anymore. Not really. You mm-hmm. know, like we, we know in the back of our head, like, oh, yeah, he is a kid from Texas. But like everyone thinks of him as this very metropolitan ca- European kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he himself has faked it until he made yeah, it. Yeah. But at one day, yeah. at one point he was like a kid in the Texas suburbs watching Magnum PI in his living room. Yes, absolutely. Right. Or, or neon, uh, ne- uh, what, uh, what is the anime neon Evangelion? Yeah. Neon Genesis. Um, Evangelion. Yeah, ne- neon Genesis Evangelion, which he says is his favorite anime. He's like, I watched it in five days. I love it. <laughs> Great. You should bookmark this conversation. Try to remember this conversation when you're talking about Steve Zissou next. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because I think there's an interesting flip that occurs. So now he's made Royal Tenenbaums, and he's now pretty certain of himself as a director, as an auteur, as an artist. Right. Steve Zissou represents something a little bit different. He is a, He has made it for real. Yeah. But his uncertainty is about other things. And, right, and right. maybe that's what Wes Anderson felt about himself. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you guys should have yeah, maybe that would be a topic of conversation on your next episode. Absolutely. So Scott mentioned this a little earlier, but yeah, the kind of hero moment, I guess, of the movie, you know, uh, uh, Royal's most altruistic act is getting a divorce from his wife, finally. 
Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, that's like the big grand romantic gesture. And uh, it plays really well. His his chemistry with uh, Danny Glover is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the racism, the like generational racism mm-hmm. is just like, just so, uh, God damn it, just so funny. But the... <laughs> The then when he's like, I finally get it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think much of you at first, but like you're the opposite of me. He's everything that I'm not. Yeah, and I and I love that he said he gives her the divorce papers. He's like, I got you something, like a gift, yeah, like a yeah. present. And he, and it's the divorce papers, and he's just like, Hey, I love you, and I want you to be happy, and like he means it. He mm-hmm. means it. Whereas like when he was talking about like I miss you, like all these things earlier, it was manipulative because he wanted his fortune back. He mm-hmm. wanted the life that he had back uh, because he had lost it all. Only and only when he lost it all, he was perfectly content with staying in that hotel by himself. You know, sure. And mm-hmm. and now he realizes what he's lost, and and he doesn't want her back, but he he does love her genuinely, and he's like, I genuinely love you and want you to be happy. Here's your divorce. You know. Amazing. Yeah, it's like, and even going back to the kids, it's like for so long, Royal in this movie is fighting against realizing what he's lost. Like you said, like he doesn't want to acknowledge that he will never get to have a perfect relationship with his kids because of the way that he treated them for so much of their lives. And to acknowledge that is to mean that all that time is lost. Yeah. But to really accept that reality and to like start to be like, yeah, I know I wasn't there for you or in his own way, understand that and accept that he's finally able to like create like real do real things for these people. Right. Right. Uh, um, and the wedding. And, yeah. Then we get the wedding um, or, a, or the not wedding as the case may be. But right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we get another uh, burst of Wes Anderson violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the first, but certainly not the last example of a, of a dog not making it to the end of a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I definitely I, wanted to talk about this. Why does he kill so many dogs? It's yeah. very it, curious. It, it is. Uh, it, I think it's because it's like it's like an instant sort of like loss of innocence thing. And I think that he plays around with that because, you know, like a boy and his dog, like it's a very innocent idea. Yeah, and Charlie so, Brown and Snoopy. Yeah. And so the idea of of like killing the dog, but he never shows it really like it, it's always like kind of off screen or like, mm-hmm. you know. Well, um, and, and the reality. Grand Budapest, it gets pretty on screen. Well, I guess that's, uh, but that's a. Yeah. Well, that's a different thing altogether. Well, it's funny because yeah. like we're Americans and Americans are have this weird relationship with our animals and pets. Right. And I think with Wes Anderson, it's kind of reminding you of the reality, which is like dogs get hit by cars. Right. A- animals die. Pets, yeah. you know, just get wiped mm. out. And like and the kids are sad. But then the movie doesn't stop and treat it like a big sad moment because it's like, yeah, the, yeah we, we lost Buckley. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, too, because he set this up at the beginning. He does like a, a, a setup and payoff because at the beginning during the fire escape, the, the fire drill, Buckley oh, yeah. doesn't make it in the fire drill. Uh, they, right. he's they're, they're like, yeah, but what we didn't get Buckley, and he's like, it doesn't matter, we're all dead, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, and so, sure. so again, the Buckley doesn't make it, but his kids were saved, and and his kids were saved because of Royal, mm-hmm. um, stepping in and saving them, and and yeah. and so I think to a certain extent there is like a weird, he obviously has a weird relationship with pets, um, <laughs> and a weird relationship with with our relationship with pets. But um, I think that the, the, I like the setup payoff of those two scenes um, in, in the movie. We should remember too, that Buckley should have died in that plane crash. Right. 
It's almost like, I, I I almost think that Buckley's story is like a Final Destination thing or something. Right, like, like in those final like moments, supposed to, <laughs> right yeah. as the car was about, and he's like, "Oh, it's finally going to happen this time." My leash is tied to the radiator. Yeah. Here we here we go, old yep. friend. Let us part yeah. as equals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Buckley and death. Uh, Eli chases or Chaz chases Eli through the house. We get the handheld camera back. They like they fall over the edge into like a peace garden, and yeah. uh, Eli's like, "I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum." And we get uh, one of my favorite part of every Wes Anderson movie, Recovery from a Disaster. Uh, mm-hmm. This beautiful tracking shot of just showing that everyone kind of putting the pieces back together. Uh, I love the shit out of Dusty getting or g- giving medical adv- or getting uh, giving medical advice, even though he's not really a <laughs> doctor. Yeah. A corneal abrasion. Tell me, call me if it spreads to the other eye. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious line. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I do, I do think this might be Ben Stiller's best performance. The perfect use of Ben Stiller. I think Ben Stiller's anger is a very important part of his, he's just so good at being angry and frustrated, but then he's also really good at being sad. And um, that moment of connection between him and Royal where, I mean, his line reading of like, I've had a really rough year, dad is like, perfect Killer. kills it yeah it's yeah. it's he like underneath all of it he really just he's a son that wants to reach out to his dad or needs to reach out to his dad in this moment and his dad tries to be there as mm-hmm. best as he can yeah yeah it's it's a really beautiful moment in the movie for sure it definitely it's the one that like really hit me i think mm-hmm. was just like his voice cracking of like i've had a really it's been a really tough year dad and and just like oh man it's it's rough and earlier when he's uh when when uh Danny Glover's character is getting ready for the wedding and he comes in behind him and he was like he was like oh you're a widower i'm a widow i'm a widower too and he was like i know chas and just like gives him like a yeah, pat on the back yeah. and it's just it's the, those <laughs> little moments of just chas being like no i can do this on my own but then like in those moments where he lets his guard down and lets someone be a father to him it really means the world to him because he doesn't realize how much he just kind of needs a hug. I know. I think that's Mm -hmm. what makes Chaz's anger and prickliness. So, you know, so, so, so funny and heartwarming because he's just so nakedly vulnerable. Yes. To everyone around him, just on the brink of collapse. Yeah. And, and it, and it, and it finally happens and uh, we get Mordecai and uh, Margo and Richie on the Margo and yeah, Richie on the roof. Mm-hmm. Where they uh, they reflect on like the white feathers, right? And uh, we get a beautiful epilogue where we see that uh, Royal was closer to the end than he was at the beginning. Um, his 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 redemption was short lived, but it it mattered. Uh, the thing that I love about this is that at the beginning of this movie, he says, "I have six weeks to live," and he didn't know that he was right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That great. that's so like it's exactly the kind of thing like it's a, it's the kind of thing that like in in other types of movies wouldn't work you would kind of roll your eyes at it almost right mm-hmm. but here because of the sort of heightened fairy tale quality to this with the narrator and the novelistic thing it feels so perfectly suited that he knew when he would die but didn't realize it. It's much like, and and then and as soon as he said it, you know, he realized it was true. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's 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 just a really incredible, uh, 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 like sort of screenwriting thing of like he really he didn't know he only had six weeks to live, but he l- treated those six weeks like he did, and as a result, he did die exactly the way that he set out to. 
Right. Um, and yeah. that's kind of incredible, honestly. Just yeah. what a great, what a great yeah. story. And like the emotion, like, like Chaz getting to be there at the end. Yeah. Like getting to be there in the ambulance with his dad. It, it is yeah. something that could so easily, like you said, be so schmaltzy and feel so fake, but it's treated so stark that it just, yeah. it just hits you like a, you know, like a, like a wallop. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that where the much overused word poetic mm-hmm. is actually appropriate. Mm-hmm. It actually is a poetic closing of the loop for his character and for the story. And they don't hang a lantern on it. That's why we don't roll our eyes at it. (laughs) They don't really say that. or Nobody goes, you know, it's ironic that he, you know, or anything like that. We, I mean, you could easily go, I I didn't even think about that until years after I'd seen the movie multiple times. I didn't really think about it that way. Yeah. And and it's one of those things, this movie pays dividends on -hmm. on reviewing, by the way. Like, we haven't talked about the fact. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. I saw it like five times in the theater alone. And it just never ceases to pay off for me. And those little things, those little discoveries are all still there. And it's just a rich, uh, rich richly woven tapestry of a story. And mm-hmm. it has this uh, love, This ending is a big part of why it all comes together. Yeah. We end on Maddox Hill Cemetery, Royal's favorite place. And it's, uh, you know, we get that amazing epitaph where, you know, Royal Tenenbaum died rescuing his family from the fiery wreckage of a sinking battleship. <laughs> and it's 100% true. That's exactly yeah. what he did, even without trying to. Yeah. Like, and it's like, it's, it is his death. It ends with a family walking away from their father's funeral, mm-hmm. which is like a universally, it's like a sad thing that everyone has to go through. Almost right. everyone has to go through is burying the patriarch, burying their father or their father figure. And in this movie, it's like a moment of triumph, right? Because it's, they're all walking away together and it's the going back, Scott, like we really did it. Didn't we? Yeah. He, (laughs) he, he saved his family. Yeah. He became a good father at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, what a movie. Like that was, (laughs) that was, that was the thing is like, as soon as like the directed by Wes Anderson credit came on, I was like, God damn it. What a movie. Like I just couldn't (laughs) help it. Like it's such, it's such a great fucking movie oh man god so good two times that i watched this movie consecutively and i don't do that with a whole lot of movies Mm. one time was when it was in the theater and we had an ice storm and i didn't have any power so i went the movie theater had power so i just watched the royal tenenbaums a couple of times in a row the other time was i was watching it i was hanging at my parents house and my dad wasn't home and i was watching it for some reason and he came home and just watched the funeral scene with me and the the Van Morrison came on, which really got his uh, perked, uh, perked up his ears. He's like, "Oh, Van Morrison, what? Are, this seems like a really interesting movie." And I thought about it, and I said, "You want to watch it?" And he was like, "Yeah, sure." And, w- and I just started it over again and watched it with my dad, wow. who's not the kind of guy you would think would watch West and enjoy a Wes Anderson movie, but he loved it. Mm-hmm. I think this this and Fantastic Mr. Fox might be the only two movies Wes Anderson movies he's ever seen. <laughs> But it was something watching it with my dad, I'll tell you, and I can't get too far into that. I mean, there's you can understand why, but um, yeah. I, that's really just kind of piggybacking on your – you get to the end, you see that Wes Sanders, you go, damn, what a movie. It's almost like I could watch that all over again right now, and I have done that you know, yep. a couple of times. So yep. it's that kind of movie. Yeah, the, just yeah. the one, two, three from Bottle Rocket to Rushmore to this is is pretty striking. Yeah. I can't think of another another filmmaker that has – that much of like a staircase like a three-step staircase (laughs) you know like 
I, you know, I, I, I think of, I think of like other filmmakers and it's like, oh yeah, like the third one was their best one at the time. You know, I, I can think of that, but like even something like, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino, as we reference a lot because they come from the same kind of period of time. Um, even he doesn't like Jackie Brown isn't his Royal Tenenbaums, you know? And I, I mean, I love Jackie Brown. Don't get me wrong, sure. but that's, but that's not his Royal Tenenbaums. His Royal Tenenbaums is Pulp Fiction. Um, and, and so it's, it, it is interesting though, just like the steps that, yeah, that, go, that take us to full fledged yeah, Wes Anderson. To go from like scrappy Austin indie kid to like great American filmmaker telling yeah. New York, New York family saga starring Gene Hackman. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. So yeah, really great, uh, great conversation, John. Good, 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 good talking to you. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me on. I really had a lot of fun. You got anything you want to plug? Yeah, well, we're good. we got a new season of our uh, Mitch Bryan, my uh, podcasting partner, and I have a new season of 007 by Seven where we're discussing the James Bond film Seven Minutes at a Time coming soon. Mm-hmm. Where you've uh, been slowly recording episodes for From Russia with Love over the past few months. It's the longest lead up I've ever had. It's a long dry uh, before, movie, but yeah. It's a long dry movie, but it's been really hard to schedule. I've never had so much trouble scheduling a podcast uh, mm. uh, in my life. But uh, this fall, we're going to be coming out with new episodes. We had Dr. No already a couple of years ago now. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've got that, and I'm doing ABCDTOS where we're talking about the uh, Star Trek, the original series episodes alphabetically oh, right. with uh, our, our friends Pete the Retailer, Tom Taylor, and, our, uh, and my friend Joe Mazel. So those two things I got going on as far as things to plug, and that's about it. Okay, nice. Um, All right. Well, uh, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, We will be back next week to talk about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Um, In the meantime, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's duelinggenre.com slash support. Uh, I have no idea what we're going to do for our franchise potential episode for this one, for this Wes Anderson season. Um, If you guys have suggestions, let us know, because I I, I really don't know what we're going to do for that. But uh, uh, check that out. That's duelinggenre.com slash support. Uh, Three bonus podcasts a week for as little as $5 a month. Um, We appreciate everyone who does that. And of course, join the Discord. There's a link in the show notes to join our uh, Dueling Genre Discord where you can talk directly with us um, as you listen to the episodes and we can discuss the Royal Ten of Moms and what have you. Um, and uh, share your Wes Anderson thoughts with us if uh, if you so desire. That is franchiseography at duelinggenre.com. And uh, that's about does it. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.